0: Welcome back to our James slash PVN College podcast. They really are one and the same at this point because we have been in James for almost an entire school year. And believe it or not, we are in the last chapter of the book. So we really, counting this one, we have two sermons left. That's it. Two sermons left in the book of James. And you guys will have gone through James in an entire school year. And, and I just think that's awesome. And it's just been so powerful and exciting. And um, we're really kind of sprinting to the finish here, and I think this is going to be just such a good time together. Um, we are going to be in James chapter five, obviously. James five one through six, we'll do that, and then in the, the next week, we'll do nine through the. Uh, or excuse me, we'll do seven through the end of the chapter. So uh, this week, James chapter five one through six. Let's go through it together right now, and then we'll we'll jump in. So James five one through six. Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, and your garments have become moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have rusted, and their rust will be a witness against you and consume your flesh like fire. It is in the last days that you have stored up your treasure. Behold, the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields and which has been withheld by you cries out against you. And the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. You have lived luxuriously on the earth and led a life of wanton pleasure. You have fatted your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and put to death the righteous man. He does not resist you. Uh, these are some very intense words from, from our friend James. Uh, and we'll get into them. But before we start, I have a confession to make. I am one of those really, really weird, just gross people. I enjoy running. I do. I just enjoy. I like running. Just going out there and running. No one is chasing me. There's not a prize at the end. I'm just a sicko like that, I think. Um, and while I love running, sometimes while I, maybe some of you, maybe the, the rare few of you may know what I'm talking about, Um, sometimes while I'm, while I'm doing so, while I'm out there running, I can begin to ignore the world around me. Uh, the music in my headphones is pumping, right? And my mind is just kind of wandering off while I am running. And then out of nowhere, a truck will fly right by and scare me to death, but it shakes me out of this, uh, you know, out out of the trance that I'm in. And it reminds me of the world around me. It kind of, um, Brings me back, if you will, to reality. And the book of James is like that truck flying past you. His tone is very direct and and especially here, right, even harsh sometimes. But when you see someone you love about to walk out into traffic, you don't whisper to them, you shout. That's what James is doing here. He is shaking us awake to the world, to the consequences, to the realities So often, you and I, right, so often we struggle to be direct with the people we love. James loves us enough to forget about his reputation and be direct with us. So often we get lulled to sleep by the world around us, numbed out to the things going on. And very strong language is used by James here in order to shake us awake From the trance that the world has put on us. He loves us enough to be direct. And serious sins with serious consequences deserve serious language, rooted in serious love. Because James seriously loves his people and the church. Let's take it a couple verses at a time. We'll look here at James chapter 5, verse 1. James chapter 5, verse 1. Come now, you rich. Weep and howl, for your miseries are coming upon you. This is another verse that weirdly is not on a lot of Instagram pictures. That's so weird. Anyway, James seems to be speaking with Christians here because it's the same intro as he does in verse in chapter four, verse 13, because you know in five-one it says Come now, you rich who, you, who weep and howl for your miseries. But then in 4.13, it's the same. And James is definitely talking to Christians in chapter 4. And he says in chapter 4.13, Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we'll go to such and such a city. We talked through that last week. The same introduction shows us that he's talking to the same audience here. James is clearly speaking to Christians. So he's talking to Christians here whose hearts have become hardened due to their wealth. And it's sad because our first reaction here might be that this part can't be to Christians. It's so harsh. He can't be talking to, especially the ancient Christians. So many of them were poor. How could they have acted this way when so many of their brothers and sisters were so poor? And some of them probably came from poverty into this wealth. Well, if we take it to be Christians here, if we take James's audience to be Christians here, it shows us two things. First, the ancient church was not the perfect church we think it was. The ancient church and, this, and the church today have one big thing in common. They both have people in them, right? The ancient church had corrupt people. Paul and Jesus constantly warned the churches about what? About wolves in sheep's clothing. Matt Chandler says it like this, don't romanticize it. ancient church all the issues that are present today were there there were women in the congregation who didn't like each other there were men in there who were living duplicitous lives there were teenagers in there while and out i could keep going don't over romanticize the early church they were a train wreck just like we are so it shows us first of all if james is speaking to christians it shows us that the ancient church was not this perfect utopia that we think it was which shows us again it's not the power of the people, it's the power of the Savior. This, if anything, should make us run and, and, and rely on Jesus so much more. And secondly, it shows us that no Christian is immune to the pull of this world. No Christian, Bible teacher, Christian for 60 years, whatever, no Christian is immune to the pull of the world. James's main thrust in this book is that the church, while being pressured by the outside, has to keep depending on God. That's his main point. The church, while experiencing all this external pressure, has got to keep depending on God internally. Like Nehemiah, right? Keep praying and keep going. Keep praying and keep going. But the temptation was to fold into the world's ways. Remember in James chapter 2 verses 1 through 7 the church was giving the influencers of the day the wealthy of the day the best seat in the house because nothing slows down persecution like popularity and deep pockets that's why so many of them that's what so many of them were trusting in that's why they let the rich and the influencers have the best seat because that's where their trust was they'll get us through this rather than Jesus But before we are so quick to call them out for what they did, we need to ask ourselves, what do I run to in times of difficulty? The main thrust of this text is that they put their trust, not that they had money, that's, that's fine. They put their trust in it, though. And whether you have money or not, the question is, what do I run to in times of difficulty? Are we quick to pray together? Or do we switch on the TV to numb it out? Which doesn't really help us if we're honest. Do we get on social media where the pre, where we can complain to people who will just agree with us? Is getting our ego stroked? Are we putting our trust in the riches of our day? Look at James five two through three. James five two through three. Your riches have rotted and your garments have become moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have rusted. We'll come back to that. And their rust will be a witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire. It is in the last days that you have stored up your treasure. This seems very harsh. And it also seems like it's already happening, right? That's your gold and silver have already rusted and, and that sort of thing. And to some degree it is. But James, but what James is doing here with his harsh words and his threat of punishment is like what some parents do. And this will help clue you into what's going on, and it'll give you a clue as to what Old Testament prophecy was like. Let me give you an example. Um, And I know some of you have been there. You might be picking on your sister, and your dad comes in and sees what's happening, right? And then he drops the bomb. He says, I'm going to spank you. Now, it sounds like he's predicting the future, but he may not actually be saying that he's going to do it. He's not trying to predict the future. He is stating it as a fact, to get you to stop so that that won't be your future, right? He's saying this could be your future. But he's saying that to get you to stop so it won't be your future. And if you understand that, if you've been there, right? I have. Let's shout out to Skip. It, it'll help you understand what James is doing here. This section where James, you know, and especially in verse 1 where he says weep and howl, that's that's kind of a strange thing to say. It's because he's quoting from the Old Testament. This text particular, James 5, 1 through 6, has a lot of echoes in the Old Testament. And, and the reason it pulls there is because this is where prophets were calling the people of God to repent by threatening judgment. And it sounds like they're predicting the future, but they really weren't trying to do that. They were telling them, if you don't change, this will be your future. And this is what James is doing here. The point wasn't to predict the future, it was to change their behavior so that this wouldn't be their future. That's why he's so harsh here. These people's riches may not have wasted away yet, but that day is coming. How much property you own won't save you in a hospital bed. Your toys and pleasures can't comfort you after that heartbreak, after that bad phone call. The legendary theologian Andy Minio, right in his song Legend says, What's money without peace? What's love without trust? What is success without friends? A crib with nobody in it. A way, to, a way to sum that up may be wealth can fill, but it cannot fix. Wealth can fill you up, but it cannot fix the problems that you have. Which brings us to our, our uh, text from the Old Testament for today. Proverbs twenty three. Verses four through five, and then we'll jump back into James. Proverbs 23, verses four through five. And this is talking about again, don't put your trust in wealth. Proverbs 23, four through five says this do not weary yourself, in in other words, don't stress yourself to gain wealth. Cease from your consideration of it, don't even think about it. Verse five when you set your eyes on it, it's gone. For wealth certainly makes itself wings like an eagle that flies away towards the heavens. The reason wealth flies like an eagle, right, is because in the Old Testament especially, an eagle's flight is thought of to be fast, strong, and unchanging. So your wealth isn't just leaving you. It is quickly leaving you. It is is very strongly leaving you, and you can't stop it. You can't change that. With every passing day, Your riches and mine, with every passing day, your riches are wasting away. As I speak in this very moment that you're listening to me, your riches are getting less and less valuable. That new thing is getting older and older, and there's nothing you can do about it. Keeping your heart happy in riches is like trying to hold water in your hand. It will fade. It's frustrating. It's impossible. You see in verse 3 also of James, now we're back in James, so you see in verse 3 where it says your gold and your silver have rusted? Here's what James is trying to tell us, and some of the science majors out there may have caught it. Gold doesn't rust. Pure silver really doesn't rust either. It's the copper inside it that catches. James is saying, so, so if they don't rust, then why is James talking about this? James is saying that your gold and silver might as well rust for all the good they're worth in eternity. Rusted metal is physically useless. Gold and silver rust as they are spiritually useless. They may as well have rusted over spiritually. They cannot last into eternity. And then in verse three, it says, In the last days you have stored up your treasure. This word for for laid up or stored up, it means to hoard, to selfishly pile it up. So it's not this, this isn't, don't picture a a responsible. A man or woman having a good savings account. That's not the picture here. This is gross, inappropriate, unnecessary filling of things to selfishly pile up their riches. These rich people here don't just have money, which is okay. No, the picture here is endlessly piling it up. Piling up all this stuff. And this is important to remember too. Especially in biblical times, wealth was not, don't picture a bunch of dollar bills everywhere, a stack full of uh, bills and money like that. Wealth was in stuff. Wealth was in land. Wealth was heavy material. So, So it literally is a house just filled with stuff, with junk that's valuable. Piling up all this wealth, that's where their hope is. That's why they're desperately trying to pile up as much of it as they can. It's almost a picture of desperation. Now, there's nothing wrong with having a savings account, right? Acts chapter 4 tells us that everyone in in the church gave so that no one was in need. It's good to be not in need. Paul tells us in 1 Timothy that anyone who's lazy and doesn't provide for his family is worse than an unbeliever. Having money is not a sin. King David had more money than any of us will ever have, and he was a man after God's own heart. Having less money doesn't make you more holy and having more money doesn't make you less, but how much is enough? Storing all this gold that is great physically, but is that is great physically, but is rusting every day. Spiritually it's becoming less and less valuable. Here's a way to think about money as well. Every day of your life that goes by, your money becomes less valuable to you spiritually. Every day that goes by, that savings account, that stuff that you've got, it becomes less and less value to you spiritually because you are one day less on this earth and one day closer to eternity where you can't take it with you. And the tragedy in this text is that these people are building up more and more as their days are getting less and less. They're saving up for the wrong thing, driving 100 miles an hour in the wrong direction. This is what one of the commentaries said. These people lived without watching God's clock. They stored up earthly goods as if there was nothing to expect but this life and its needs. They planned to live forever, but on earth. That's the vibe, and I think that's so true. That's the vibe that this text is give. They were planning to live forever on earth. And then we get into James chapter 4, excuse me, James chapter 5, verse 4. Behold, the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields and which has been withheld by you cries out against you. And the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth or the Lord of hosts. This shows us a couple of things here. People are not static. That's what you've got to understand. People are not static. There, are, there is no such thing, biblically speaking, of good people who just don't care about God. We are created and designed to worship. Just like, And again, I think God is showing us something through the cosmos. Just like you are always under the sun or the moon, no matter what you do, You are always under a God of some sort, no matter what you do. And what you worship will affect you. In this verse, we see these people's true gods, their true hearts. This isn't a money issue. This is a worship issue. They are not after a healthy savings account. They're not doing the best they can to save up as much as they can. Saving money is wise, but these people aren't wise. They are corrupt. This is the main reason James is so furious. The most important account is not savings or checking. It is the account we will have to give to God. James is showing us the spiritual reality here. Their earthly storehouses are full, but their heavenly ones are bare bones empty. Their rusted gold is a witness against them. Verse 3. And now the cry of their mistreated workers is a witness against them. Their selfishness saving is their, their selfish saving is actually creating a higher and higher debt that they owe to God. And, and this is showing us too, again, they're not just concerned with money. This is corruption. This is evil that's happening here. This is showing us that they're not, they don't just happen to be good people who are who are happening to store up money. No, this is rooted in a worship issue. Your money, and we'll talk about this at the end a little bit. Your money is a direct line to your heart, right? People always joke, you know, the quickest way to a woman's heart is through this, the quickest way to a man's heart is through this. No, 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 no. It's through your money. The quickest way to your heart, the quickest, the the clearest window. Into your heart is your money. And we see through these people, they're being selfish with their money. And it shows because they're being selfish with their peers as well. But God will forgive and help restore them if they would turn from their ways. James chapter 5, verse 5. You have lived luxuriously on the earth and led a life of wanton pleasure. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter this is a look into the hearts and lifestyle of these people this word for luxury you've lived in luxury in greek it means softly a dainty kind of living this is the softness of luxury this is not a hard-working person right you picture kind of the fat cat sitting on the cushion that's what you're supposed to picture here this is not a hardworking, driven person this is Save up as much as I can so I can be as lazy as I can for as long as I can. That's where their hope is. This word for wanton pleasure or self-indulgence, it means wasteful, living in excess. This person is not being wise with the money that they're getting. They're just, they just want more of it. And it doesn't just mean to live in excess in terms of materials. It means to give yourself over to it. It has a spiritual connotation, which is good because, again, how you live with money doesn't just have physical con- It has spiritual connotations. It means to let your passion run over you, to just drown in it, to let them define you. It's to be spiritually, spiritually lost in excess, not just materially. These are so-called Christians who have become selfish and overstuffed with things, but don't miss the eternal, and if I can say it, the hellish implications here. The end of the verse. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. James is saying, every deceitful deal that you struck, Every time you cheated a poor worker out of his wages and stuffed your bank account full of money that you didn't earn, the hellfire that waits for you, you're just adding kindling to it. Every dollar that you stack is just another thing for the wood pile that will burn you. You have fattened yourself, not like the warlord you think you are, not like the rich king you think you are. In God's eyes, you have fatted yourself like cattle that will be slaughtered. Habakkuk 2.16 says, Your glory will become your shame. Our pastor preached preached this through Habakkuk a couple weeks ago. and and Your glory will become your shame. The thing that you glory in, the thing that you love in this world, When God comes back in judgment, that thing will turn to ash in your mouth. It will collapse in front of you. The thing that you have loved for so long will turn on you and be the very source of your destruction. The animal that you have kept in your arms for so long is going to be what mauls you to death. World War I brought with it the terrible invention of poison gas. The gas would paralyze, cause seizure, loss of vision, and eventually death. It was horrible. But one thing that the armies would do is doctor the gas so that it would smell like roses while their enemy was walking through the fields. So that their enemies would not just inhale it, but, but deeply inhale this sweet smell, filling their lungs with what they thought was sweet and wonderful, but in reality, it was just killing them faster. James is saying this corrupt business that you have loved, that smelled so good to you during your life, has been poisoning your lungs the whole time, and you are about to die from it unless you turn from this. Lastly, chapter 5, verse 6. You, talking to the rich, the rich Christians, the corrupt ones, you have condemned and put to death the righteous man. He does not resist you. This final verse shows us that our individual actions have group consequences. The private sins that you that you partake in, that I partake in, will affect public society, will change the way people are, will change society. The righteous man listed here is not a specific person, but a representative figure. Okay, So when you hurt the righteous person, you're hurting the the people that he's representing. And he represents the followers of Jesus who are poor here. The rich have condemned them. This is a legal term. It speaks to how the rich have not only taken their money, they have taken their rights away from these poor Christians. The wealthy have used their influence in the legal system, not only to deprive the poor of their money, but of their rights. These workers have earned their wages by right. Take away the money that they earned legally, and you're essentially taking away their right as well. The system is now against the poor in James's day. And it could have been that the poor were going to the courts and to the magistrates for help, but the wealthy Christians have already beat them there. So they have condemned them legally as well. And then it says, you have put to death the righteous man, which shows that we are not off the hook when we say, well, I didn't hurt that person directly. These people have no money to purchase food or protection. They've been cheated out of their land. They've been abused at their job. Without these things, they are as good as dead. They have no means of resistance in this broken system. So James is showing us several things in this verse. And again, I know it seems This is harsh. This is hard listening, right? This isn't fun to preach. Again, I don't anticipate anyone posting these quotes on Instagram later, right? But James is showing us a few things in these verses. Um, Several things we'll walk through real quick. Number one, God's seeming harshness is a form of love. God's seeming harshness is a form of love. God is all-loving. He is never direct in order to be mean or hateful. He will be direct with us. He will use difficult circumstances in life to draw us back to Him. Hebrews 12, 6, the Lord loves those He disciplines. C.S. Lewis, and you've got, you've got to start making a category for, you, for this in your mind, for the rough love of God. C.S. Lewis calls this a severe mercy. Think about that, a severe mercy. When you're pulling someone out of a burning building, you're not going to be gentle with them, right? A severe mercy. It seems to suggest that God would never be direct or rough with you unless he desperately needed to get you out of something very dangerous. Uh, One way to think about it might be pain now is worth it if it saves from death later. In the Psalms, David says, you know, cleanse me with hyssop wash me deeply and and the the picture there is not you know sticking david in the washing machine and letting him turn around it's this idea of a washboard right by the river where you drag the thing over and it and it's rough and the thing and the clothing kind of looks rough after but it's a deep cleansing that's the picture here that's what james is trying to do he's not trying to be the doctor that jokes around with you in the waiting room. No, he's trying to do surgery to fix this. And God is the same way. When it seems like he's being rough, when it seems like he's handling us harshly, he's doing it out of love to fix things. Elizabeth Elliot Elliot is is a wonderful Christian author. Um, She was in Scotland years and years ago, and she would watch these sheep herders take the sheep and dunk them in these antiseptic, antiseptic tanks to clean out all the infection, to, to get the ticks and the bugs off them? Because the sheep obviously can't get them out themselves. And the farmer said one time, you know, I wonder, or the, or the, the, you know, the shepherd, whatever, you, you, you fill in the blank, right? Said one time, I wonder if the sheep understand what they're going through here, that it's for their good. And Elizabeth Elliott, who had been through a lot in her life, said, I do. That's what James is saying that God is doing here. When it seems that he's being rough, he is digging deep to, in love to get out what needs to be gotten out in our lives. Number two, God's patience is great. He is long-suffering is the, the fancy word for it. These corrupt Christians are even still being directly addressed by James himself to fix their ways, to end their corruption and return to the church. Jesus didn't immediately send these people to hell. He sends them one of his brothers, literally, instead, with a passionate plea. And they, we don't have any evidence that they were rethinking their ways. Jesus is meeting them in their sin to try to bring them back. Number three, churches can become corrupt, and we must be watchful. We talked about this at the beginning of the sermon, right? If it can happen to the ancient church, it can happen to any of us. And as you guys, you know, like I said, you guys are in college, so you are the next generation of, of tithers and deacons and Sunday school teachers. As you guys begin to enter the workforce, as you begin to give your money to local churches, we have to hold each other accountable for how we spend and how we save. Number four, we already talked about this, your money is a direct line to your soul. What you do with your money will reflect what's going on in your So remember, these people's habits with money was just a sign of what was really going on in their hearts. They didn't just care about money. We saw this, right? They were lazy, right? This word for luxury. They were lazy. They gave themselves over to their passions. They were part of a corrupt system that hurt and oppressed the poor. They lied and cheated. Your money is a direct line to what's going on in your soul. And lastly, number five, we must be direct with the ones that we love. James is honest and clear here. We must pray. We must pray through what we say to people, but then we've got to trust God enough to say it. James's willingness to be so direct with a church that's already fragile, right? The church is struggling. They're suffering from the outside. And instead of coddling them instead of whipping out a few jokes, right, and then that sort of thing. James is direct, straight to the point, which shows us that he is completely trusting God's truth, not to crush, but to fix and redeem. We need to lovingly speak truth into other people's lives and not care so much about them getting mad at us for it, but care about them instead. Let's pray.